Well, we read last Sunday at the end of chapter 41 in Genesis that the famine came and Pharaoh told everyone to go to Joseph and do what he says. And that all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And so Joseph has literally become the savior of all the ancient Near East. In reading the story of Joseph, we need to understand that we are also reading the story of Christ and his gospel. It's the only way to understand it. And the gospel according to Joseph is that there is a way to live and not die. We'll see that phrase a couple of times in these chapters. There is a way to live and not die. It's his gospel. And the gospel according to Jesus is that Jesus is that way. Our text this morning is Genesis chapters 42, 43, 44, and 45. Don't despair. Don't despair. Uh, You know, all of this could be summarized like this. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We could sum it up in that way. We won't be reading every verse in these four chapters, but we will read some significant chunks And I'll narrate the rest to hopefully keep us moving along. You'll find the sermon outline helpful this morning as we work our way through these four Old Testament gospel chapters. I'll begin reading in chapter 42 and verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 28. So we'll take one big chunk to begin with. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among those others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And One is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies." And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. 
If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine to your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw his distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Rumor answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then they turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at a lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Well, the report has gone out that there is bread for life in Egypt. It's like the gospel going out in the ancient Near East. Get grain that you may live and not die. That's the gospel. But there's one word in that gospel that gets Jacob's son's attention. Did you see it? It's the word Egypt. When Joseph's brothers hear the word Egypt, they suddenly look at each other. They suddenly stare at each other, so much that Joseph notices it, and he says, why do you look at one another? Why do they look at one another? Because the word Egypt strikes at their consciences. The word Egypt brings immediately to mind their sin against their brother Joseph and against their father Jacob because they'd sold Jacob or Joseph into slavery. The same word Egypt brings up both their sin and the gospel. So Jacob sends his ten sons to Egypt to buy grain, but he keeps Benjamin, the son of his love, the son that's close to his right hand. The last time Jacob sent his favorite son out with his brothers, he didn't come back. And Jacob is not about to let that happen again. So after 22 years, Joseph's brothers approach Joseph in Egypt, and they bow down before him. How does Joseph respond? Don't you know that Joseph wants to rip off his Egyptian robe and speak in Hebrew to them and say, Hey, it's me, Joseph. That's exactly what 17-year-old Joseph would have done, right? But he's not 17-year-old Joseph anymore. Now he's 39-year-old Joseph. Former slave, Joseph. Former prisoner, Joseph. Been through the school of suffering, Joseph. He's spirit-filled Joseph, who's wise and discerning and who rules in Egypt. Joseph has matured. He knows better now how to address evil and how to carry out his God-given calling, which is what he's going to do. What Joseph does next is very wise. We're told that Joseph sets out to test his brothers. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. 
So Joseph speaks roughly to them. You're spies. You've come with ill intent to see where, where Egypt's vulnerable. There were probably a lot of spies like that at that time. Coming into Egypt, across Egypt's borders, to see how they might take food rather than buy food. And the brothers who have come to deal with grain say, we're honest men. But Joseph is the one who knows they're not honest men. From the very start, Joseph is not dealing with grain. Joseph gives them grain. Joseph is dealing with their sin. Yes, his brothers need food, but they need something more. Have they become honest men? Have his brothers become men that Joseph can be reconciled to since they threw him in the pit? More importantly, are his brothers reconciled to God? Because if they have not repented of their sins, they cannot be reconciled to God. So Joseph implements a plan to provoke their guilty consciences, to awaken their sin. Joseph asks them questions through an interpreter, and they answer. They are honest men. Their father lives in Canaan, and their younger brother's at home with their father. Oh, and they reveal that one of their brothers is no more. They don't recognize Joseph, and yet Joseph keeps popping up in their conscience and in their mind. So here's the test. If you are honest men, if what you have said about yourselves and your family is true, then go home and bring back your younger brother to me. That will prove that you're honest men. You see, the whole test revolves around Benjamin, Joseph's blood brother by their mother, Rachel. Benjamin, who is their father's now favorite son. So first, he puts them all in jail for three days. Just a reminder, just a little taste of what it's like to be thrown down into the pit, to awaken their consciences of what they'd done 22 years ago. And just as they had two plans for him, first they were going to kill him, then they were going to sell him, Joseph has two plans for them. First he says, I'm going to keep nine of you and I'll send one back home. Then, he, then later he says, well, I'll keep one of you and send nine of you home. What's Joseph doing? He's testing their honesty by making one brother vulnerable to the other brothers as he was. Will they bother to come back for Simeon? If they get away with their food, will they take the money and run, which is what they'd done before? Will they do, what will they do to Benjamin? Will they treat him the way they treated Joseph when Joseph was Jacob's favorite son? So then Joseph has, has their purchase money put back in their grain sacks, and he sends them home. And on the way, one of them realizes a mistake's been made, but it's a mistake that tests whether they're honest men or not. It also stirs their consciences about the last time that they traveled home to their father, missing one of his sons with silver lining their pockets. It's as if Joseph is, is planting little ticking time bombs in their lives to go off in their consciences even after they've left and traveled on their journey. It's then in verse 28 that their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another and saying, what is this that God has done to us? The brothers don't know what God's doing. 
but it seems bad to them. God is speaking roughly to their consciences, we could say. But Joseph knows what God is doing. You see, they have a 22-year-old sin weighing on their consciences, while Joseph has 22 years in the school of suffering maturing by the Holy Spirit of God. They have experienced 22 years of broken family life in Canaan, while Joseph has experienced 22 years of God's close and abiding presence in Egypt. And while he keeps his identity a secret for now, Joseph comes right out and he tells his brothers the secret to living life. How he lives his life. Did you see it in verse 18? I fear God. What a moment for Joseph to fear God. Of course he fears God. Look at what is happening. Look at what Joseph sees. After 22 years, Joseph sees God bringing about his promises that he had in a dream. And it's not a dream. His brothers actually bow down before him, before his very eyes. It's all coming true. Now, it would be hard for 17-year-old Joseph to keep this a secret because they're bowing down to him. You know, he wants to jump up and say, look, you're bowing down to me like the dream. But it's just as hard for 39-year-old Joseph to keep it a secret. Because the secret that he's keeping is that God is the one keeping his plans and promises and moving things forward in their lives. And at that moment, Joseph sees that he has become an instrument in God's hands. That his family, who is Israel, you understand? Jacob is Israel and his sons will be Israel. That his family, who is Israel, needs more than food. They need repentance and reconciliation. The physical famine in Canaan is symbolic of the spiritual famine that has existed in this family for years, decades. And so Joseph is preaching the gospel in verse 18. On the third day, when he released his brothers from prison, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live. For I fear God. And so Joseph goes on and he speaks roughly to them to stir their consciences, to provoke the memory of their sin. His test is designed to cause them to see their sin in their own eyes and to own it. That's why it brought tears to Joseph's eyes when they admitted in his presence because of the interpreter, they didn't know that he understood their Hebrew, that they were guilty for the way they had treated him, the one that was no more. And that this, the brother's circumstances, is a reckoning for that, their 22-year-old mistreatment of their brother. So, So why didn't Joseph just reveal himself at that point? I mean, they've admitted their sin. What more does he want? Because a wise and discerning, spirit-filled man knows that people can regret what they have done without actually repenting. Joseph understands that conviction of sin, though it may bring tears, though it may raise questions about God, comes far short of repentance and turning to God. 
Just pick up in verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? See, they've, they've told him what the man said. All this has come against me, Jacob says. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is a replay, isn't it? This is a replay of when the brothers went home to see their father without Joseph 22 years before. Now at least they're conscious of their sin when they return home to their father without Simeon, although Jacob doesn't seem to be quite as broken up about Simeon. His main concern is for Benjamin. But the main thing to notice is the spiritual progression that's taking place. In verse 21, Joseph says, I fear God. In verse 28, the brothers say, what is God doing? In verse 21, they admit that they're guilty. In verse 22, they understand that there's a reckoning for their guilt. And then in verse 35, they were afraid. There's a progression taking place. The brothers' fear of God is not the same as Joseph's fear of God. Joseph's fear represents his obedient reverence for God who's been present with him and blessed him. The brothers are afraid of God. It's guilty fear. It's we're found out fear. It's there's no place to hide fear. But their mere regret is not enough. Their worldly sorrow is not enough. They need to look to God, the God of grace and his promises of salvation from sin, which are in the covenant. Let's pick up in the next chapter, chapter 43, beginning in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will not send our brother with us, we will not go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, We will not go down, for the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had a brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father Israel, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. 
If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So a couple of months have passed, and a lot of Egyptian grain has been eaten, but Jacob still won't let Benjamin go down with his brothers to Egypt to purchase more grain. We understand why. But Jacob's love for his favorite son clouds his reason. This is a very severe famine throughout all of the ancient Near East. It's severe in Canaan. Jacob's whole tribe will not survive. They will starve and die if he will not release Benjamin. Notice that it's Judah who's the voice of wisdom in Jacob's ear. Reuben had tried and failed, but Judah is the one who makes his father see reality. We could have made two trips by now. No boy, no deal. Now is the time to act. And Judah, in addition to being the voice of wisdom, is the voice of sacrifice, who convinces Jacob to trust God. Reuben has tried and failed. Reuben was willing to sacrifice his two sons if he failed to bring back Jacob's sons. Reuben's terrible. Oh, great idea. Oh, you're going to kill your sons if you lose my son? Yeah, I want to entrust my son to you. But Judah gives himself as a pledge for Benjamin's safe return. This is not the same Judah who was in chapter 38. You didn't like him. Judah's heart is exposed to us, and he's a changed man. In verses 11 to 15, Jacob puts together a gift basket for the man, kind of the way he put together gifts for Esau as he approached, including the returned money and a treasury with which to buy grain. And he sends Benjamin with his brothers to the man in Egypt. But notice his prayer in verse 14. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man who is Joseph. You see, this is the first spark of faith we've seen in Jacob for over 22 years. And it exposes a bit of Jacob's heart. What Joseph is doing affects not only his brothers and himself, but also his father and all of Israel. In verse 16, Joseph sees Benjamin. And his brothers arrive and he plans a feast for them. But the brothers think that the man is going to seize them and throw them back in prison because of the purchase money that was found back in their sacks. And in their hearts, they think, well, they think that Joseph would do what they would do, given a chance to have justice. But Joseph's servant tells them, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Seems to me that even, even Joseph's servant has a heart that fears God. Pick up in verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man whom you spoke of? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrate themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. 
Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. So the brothers enter Joseph's house for dinner and again bow down to him. And although they still don't know the man as Joseph, everyone is Egypt, after all, is probably calling him Zephanath Paneah. We see Joseph's love for his brother Benjamin immediately. As Joseph looks at him, his heart grows warm with compassion so much that he has to excuse himself. He, he runs out of the room to his chambers to cry, to weep out of sight for joy of seeing Benjamin. When he comes back, he seats the brothers in their birth order. And so they look at one another again in amazement. How did he know their birth order? How does this stranger know how to seat us? And when the food came out, all of them got plenty to eat, but Benjamin's portion was five times more than each of the other brothers. And then the text says they all had too much wine. That's what the word Mary means. They all had too much wine. Remember, whenever we see too much wine in Genesis, something goes badly for someone. Joseph's heart is exposed in his love for Benjamin, but Joseph is also baiting a trap. It's part of his plan. He's setting Benjamin up as the favorite before the other brothers. He gets five times the portion. He's not done testing their hearts, knowing that it is God who must change hearts. Let's move into chapter 44, beginning in verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from our Lord's house? Whichever of your Lord's servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now, Joseph doesn't really practice divination. Part of his ruse is to convince them that they have greatly transgressed this powerful man. He's testing them to see if they will abandon Benjamin to save themselves. 
Here's their chance to get rid of another of Jacob's favorite sons, even though Benjamin is innocent, as Joseph was 22 years before. But how do the brothers respond? They all tore their clothes when the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they all returned to the man of Egypt. And they all fell down before Joseph. They all, every one, submit themselves to remain with Benjamin in Egypt to serve this powerful man. But Joseph ratchets up the fiction. He tells them, only guilty Benjamin will stay. The other nine must go. They're free to go and leave their brother behind without any guilt. But in verse 16, they cry out, God has found out our guilt. Not their guilt in this situation with Benjamin because they're innocent, but God has found out their guilt against Joseph. And so Judah begs Joseph to listen to him, to permit him to approach, to permit him to speak. In verse 24, When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother uh, goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come, into your, uh, come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as the servant of my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah begs Joseph to let him stay in Benjamin's place because this is the boy that his father loves. Joseph sees and hears Judah's changed heart, his willingness to trade places with his brother Benjamin, and his love for his father Jacob. Pick up in chapter 45 and verse 1 as the story continues. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, 
for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler all of, all of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that is speaking to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and after that his brothers talked with him. Joseph is blubbering so loud as if Pharaoh and all of Egypt can hear him weeping uncontrollably. He's weeping because his brothers are not only convinced of their sin, and conscious of God, but they've repented of their sin and displayed contrite hearts. Now, wise and discerning Joseph, now, spirit-filled Joseph can be reconciled to his brothers. The brothers are astounded when the ruler they'd been negotiating with through an Egyptian interpreter speaks out in Hebrew, I am Joseph. They're shocked, but they're also dismayed. Dismayed because they, they wonder how Joseph is going to treat them. Remember their question back in chapter 42, verse 28, what is God doing to us? Well, Joseph explains to them in verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. And in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And in verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, though indeed it was them who sent him there in slavery, but God. God has provided through Joseph a way for Israel to live and not die. Joseph sends his brothers home to bring his father Jacob and all his family to Egypt, and there Joseph will provide for them. He will give them the best of the land in Egypt, and they will eat of the fat of the land. Let's let's connect these dots real quick. Let's connect these dots that trace Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers. Remember way back 22 years ago in chapter 37, verse 4, we were told that Joseph's brothers hated him and could not even speak peacefully to him. After Joseph reveals his identity in chapter 45, verse 3, his brothers still could not answer him, for they were dismayed. But now... 
in chapter 45, verse 15, after Joseph is merciful to them, after their sin is forgiven, after Joseph says, I will take care of you, then, for the first time, his brothers speak freely and openly with him. Isn't that cool? By the grace of God, Joseph and his brothers are reconciled to each other. That is hugely important because they're the sons of Israel. But what about Israel himself? What about Jacob? Is the grace of God doing anything in Jacob's life? Look at verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. See, through Joseph's life, Jacob's faith in God has been revived. Jacob has a habit of idolizing his sons. That's why he thought, when he thought Joseph was dead, he refused to be comforted. Do you remember that? In chapter 37, beginning of verse 34, all his sons and all his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. You see, in, that, in those words, Jacob is not just refusing to be comforted by his family. Jacob, in his soul, is refusing to be comforted by God. What a contrast he is with his son Joseph. Joseph suffered the loss of his father, his blood brother, his other brothers. Joseph suffered in slavery, in prison, and in forgetfulness or forgottenness, I should say, and yet Joseph received the comfort of God. In all his loss, Joseph received the grace of God in his life such that God was glorified in his life. Jacob refused to believe that God could comfort him. He refused to believe that God's grace would be enough for him. He refused to believe that God could be glorified in his circumstances. Sinclair Ferguson calls this spiritual poison. It's spiritual poison to refuse to be comforted by God because he won't give you what you most desire. The Jacob who had wrestled with God until he gave him his blessing now refuses God's blessing because it doesn't match his desire. We can sympathize with Jacob for losing his wife and losing his son. But it was losing his faith that led him to despair. We don't know exactly how. But in chapter 43, verse 14, when he sends all of his sons, including Benjamin, to Egypt to buy food, Jacob prays for the mercy of God. Which is the very thing he's been refusing for the last 22 years. 
And now, at the end of chapter 45, when Joseph sends word that he's alive, and gifts are given, and wagons are brought to his father, and to all of his family, to him in Egypt, Jacob's faith is revived. His spirit is revived within him. And Jacob says, it is enough. Those are pretty underwhelming words, but what they mean is that Jacob said, God's mercy works. God's mercy works. You see, to gain the son he loved, Jacob had to let go of all of his sons. He had to open his hands and place all of his hope in the hands of his heavenly father. Some of you may need to hear this this morning. Your comfort will come only when you open your hands and let go of your demands upon God and instead trust everything to Him. You may have experienced a terrible searing loss. That searing loss can become a weapon that you use against God. You can't receive comfort from God when your hands are tightly gripped around your grievances against God. Jacob opens his hands after 22 years and he receives the mercy and the comfort of God that was for him all along. Well, I want to mention three more lessons I think that we find in repentance and reconciliation in these chapters. First, conviction is rough work, but it leads to repentance. Joseph speaks roughly to his brothers, and he creates situations to convict them of their sin so that they would genuinely repent and turn to God. They don't know why this Egyptian potentate is giving them such a rough time. They just came to buy some grain like everybody else. They don't know why suddenly everything that happens reminds them of their unconfessed sin, the sin that they've hidden and lied about for 22 years. It's not just Joseph that roughs up sinners. Jesus does the same thing. When you read his word, when you gather with his people, when you hear an Old Testament sermon, and when you're left to your own thoughts, Jesus will rough you up. His spirit brings up feelings of shame and failure and guilt. We don't like it. And we don't want it. And it goes on for a while before he finally reveals himself to us. And he says, it's me. It's the brother who loves you, who died to give you salvation. It may be you this morning feeling a little roughed up over a past sin that's resurfaced. It's not therapy that you need. It's Jesus. You don't need another coping strategy. It's your coping that's not working. You need forgiveness. Is it a relational sin? Of course it's a relational sin. All sin is against God. Your reconciliation with other people will only begin when you are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, His Son. 
Have you never confessed your sin to Jesus? Have you never been forgiven? Have you never been restored? Are you still trying to suppress your fears? Is that why you joke so much around serious Christians? Is that why you're so quiet? Back away when other people get into a conversation about the gospel? You must come to the one against whom you have sinned. You need to know that Jesus will forgive you. And you can believe that he has done everything necessary so that if you would believe in him, you will not die, but you will live. Contrition is visible evidence of true repentance. Jesus works repentance in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. Yes, that's right. Jesus works repentance in the heart of Joseph's brothers, and the contrite heart of Judah is put on display for us to see. Joseph was innocent, but because he was their father's favorite, his brothers threw him into the pit. Benjamin is innocent, and yet he's in a pit. That is, Joseph has him in custody under a false charge. And the brothers don't know whether Benjamin stole the silver cup or not. For all they know, he's guilty. This is their chance to get rid of their father's favorite. To walk away with clean hands. They're free to go. And it wouldn't be their fault. But Judah, who is alienated from his father's love, pleads his father's case. This is my father's beloved son. From my father, my father's beloved wife. Please don't do this to my father. That's what he says. Look, make no mistake. Judah knows Benjamin is Jacob's favorite son. And that Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife. And he accepts it. And he accepts it. Why? Because Judah loves his father, Jacob. How? How can Judah love his father, Jacob? By grace. By grace. The grace of God is the only explanation. By grace, a lifetime of years of resentment and bitterness are replaced in Judah by heartfelt compassion for his father Jacob. You see, Judah's repentance is, just, is not just regret for what he did. It's not regret that brings forgiveness. It's the hope that there will be forgiveness that brings repentance. Repentance is not a single act that occurs in a single moment. Repentance is a radical turning of your entire life to Jesus and all of his ways. That's why it's a rough process. The brothers' treatment of their brother Benjamin and their love for their father Jacob are credible evidence of their repentance before God. It was not there before. It's there now. Because they have been transformed by grace.
Repentance that brings reconciliation often takes time and always requires Jesus. Joseph could quickly give his brothers food. But it took time for Joseph to minister grace to bring conviction and repentance to reconcile all Israel. The things that God wants to accomplish often are accomplished slowly. And he had to hide his affection for his brothers that whole time. You know Joseph was dying inside to shout, it's me, Joseph. But the spirit-filled man didn't serve himself. He had the discipline to serve his brothers. The wise and discerning, even pastoral man, knew after 22 years that God uses time and does not waste time to bring about his purposes of repentance and reconciliation. So there's no hurrying the process, and there's no giving up on the process. Joseph is the one, after all, who was sold for 20 pieces of silver, but who gives his younger brother 300 pieces of silver. Joseph is the one whose garment, remember? Remember the the coat of many colors? Joseph is the one whose garment was stolen, but he gives his brothers piles of garments as gifts. Joseph is all sufficient for Israel's needs. He has all authority to meet all their needs. He has all wisdom to lead them to repentance. He has the bread of life, and he's their brother. Joseph's life cries out, Behold the Lord Jesus Christ. He is all sufficient for you. He has forgiveness for your sinfulness, comfort for your sorrow, patience for your distress, wisdom for your folly, and strength for your weakness. Jesus is the bread of life. Come, to Jesus, behold him and do what he says to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts to you. We bend the knee to you. We praise and worship you. We confess our sins to you. We confess our desire to live holy lives in full need of your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word. And Father, we ask that you would continue to do the work of transforming us in the likeness of your Son, that we might tell the world that the bread of life can be theirs if they would but turn to Jesus. We pray that you would glorify yourself through your people in this earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.